0: It means that there is this incredible reality that all of heaven and all of eternity kind of focuses in on you and says, I want you to know the full glory of who I am. And when we get that, not only does it shine on us, but we're going to discover that the glorious light of God shines through us. And that's the whole kind of underscoring idea of the second half of the book of Ephesians. It goes right back to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, there was this great statement which said this. We are to live worthy of the calling we have received. Now, what that means is this, that God called you into this incredible life. This life where you follow him, where you surrender your life to him, where you display the incredible power and work of God, and he says, I want you to live up to what you have already been given. The Bible never says, here's a standard, try your hardest to get there. The Bible always says, here's where you are, now live it. And that's what this is all about And here in chapter 5, after we've been encouraged to keep the unity of the Spirit, to put off the old self and put on the new, to speak the truth in love and to build each other's up, we come to this statement in chapter 5 verse 1 where it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. How do we follow God's example? What does that mean? Well, we're called in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, Just as he who called you is holy, Be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God calls you and I to be holy. Now, what is holy? What does it mean to be holy? Well, let me give you a definition. Holy is a way of living that is totally devoted to a certain way of life. Being holy is a way of living that is totally devoted to a certain way of life. Here's an example of a holy guy. Anybody know his name? Gandhi, got it, you got it? Brilliant. I want to show you another holy guy. Here's another holy guy. (laughs) He is totally devoted to a certain way of living. So in that sense, he is a holy guy. But here's the point. When we think of holiness and we think of it from a Christian perspective, often what our mind does is it says, ah, being holy is about missing out on a whole lot of things. Being holy, we perceive that as missing out on a few things that are destructive for us to do rather than pursuing this incredible life that God has for us. Paul encourages us not only to be holy, but to walk in the way of love. Verse 2, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We're called not only to be holy in this idea of worthy living, but also to walk in the way of love. And in John chapter 13, Jesus said it this way A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're to be holy and we're to love one another. And Christ loved us as an example. And as a practical reality. And he gave himself for us as an act of worship. That act of of love is to live for others. This is holy living. And this holy living, this loving living, is expressed in the way we conduct ourselves sexually. Because that's what this whole passage is about. We're going to deal from verses 3 through to 14 about how to live worthy sexually. Now, let me tell you right from the outset, sex is good. It finds its true expression in a committed, trusting, loving, physical, emotional, and spiritual marriage between a husband and a wife. Biblically, that is the only environment where sexual intimacy is rightly expressed. But what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Let's go through this section. Verse 3, Ephesians chapter 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. If we're going to live worthy, we're going to live holy. And Paul says in that there's not even to be a hint. That means this. Don't discuss it. Don't watch it. Don't ponder it. Don't fantasize over it. It doesn't deserve or demand any Of our time. What doesn't? Sexual immorality. Well, that's any kind of illegitimate sexual intercourse. Impurity, which is anything that crosses a moral boundary, which spins you out into a loss of control, to have desires that are out of control. And then the word greed is in there. It says don't have a hint of sexual immorality, of impurity, or of greed. And the word greed in this sense is actually linked to this idea of purity. And it's, greed is the idea of to have more. If I'm greedy, I want more. But specifically in here it's saying, I want more. In fact, I have an uncontrollable appetite which I'm going to use other people's bodies to fulfill my desires. Greed. I have in my backyard a A pool. Now I have a little collection of these little sticks, pieces of cardboard. These are very scary pieces of cardboard. You see, what happens is in a pool, particularly over winter time, you, you can ignore it and yeah, you know, that's all fine. You you get to the end of summer and you've dived into the crystal clear, cool waters of the swimming pool. And then you leave it over winter, and what happens is it slowly goes a little opaque. And then it gets a little green. And it gets a lot green. And then then the other sort of leaves and stuff get in there. And you get to about this time of year. And what you need to do is you need to get one of these little sticks and you, you put it in the water. And when you put it in the water, you probably can't see it too well, but there are four indicators that are on there, and what you then do is you get your little tester pack here, and for those of you who are in the kind of chemistry line, you realize that this is going to tell you what your bromide, your chlorine, your pH, and your alkalinity levels are like. And what you then do is you take it to the pool company, and they smile when you walk in the door holding one of these sticks because they know that they're going to get lots of money out of you because you have to buy additives to get your pool level balanced. You know, what we're talking about here tonight is a little bit like that stick. You see, you and I, the pool of our life when it comes to our sexuality is something that if we don't pay attention to it, can get a little cloudy, can get a little dirty, can get a little out of balance. And it's good to come tonight and open the Word of God and to allow the Word of God to dip into the pool of our life and to pull it out. And to realize, where am I at? Where am I at in terms of my my immorality, my impurity, my greed? Because the test is to say, am I living holy? Am I living holy? When someone is a slave to their own sexual appetite, they will display these qualities. By choosing to live for ourselves, we begin to feed a ravenous, greedy, ever-hungry desire to always want more for ourselves, even at the cost of others. You know, here's the thing. So many people settle for way less than second best by approaching sexuality as something to fulfill their own needs. Be it in reality or through word or through picture, you can destroy what is wonderful, what is good, what is pure, for now or for the future by focusing on yourself. John uh, Satelli in an article called What is Holy Life? put it this way, and it was so good, I just thought I'd read it to you. He says this, the unholy life approaches all of these things with me, myself, and I at the center. Jesus was saying that God belongs at the center of whatever we're doing, but we as sinners tend to put the thing itself or ourselves at the center of our life. George Orwell described the emptiness of self-centered, unholy living in a story he told in one of his essays. He described a wasp that was sucking jam from his plate. And will cut the wasp in half, I mean, as you do. Um, but he said the wasp just kept sucking the sweet jam from the plate as it poured out the other end of his severed oesophagus. But here's the point, like, an, like, like a wasp, Unholy living sucks on God's creation and never knows real satisfaction. Because there is no real soul fulfillment, the world's enjoyment and passion will finally ebb. In Albert Camus's book, The Fall, he pictured a lawyer who approached sex in this manner. It was strictly pleasure for the moment without the God-intended characteristics of love, lifelong commitment, unselfishness, communication, and spiritual union. In the end, he abandoned sexual activity because of indifference and boredom. He had lost all passion for what he was doing. He saw himself as an empty wax facade. Friends, unholy living does not enjoy God's creation too much. It falls far short of enjoying it enough. Holiness finds satisfaction and fulfillment in all of life. That soul satisfaction feeds and grows a passion for life. The holy life revolves around God in every place, at every moment. It's a life of passion, of fulfillment, of meaning, and of eternity. You're living a holy life. A holy life is not a, what am I missing out on? A holy life is this incredible life that God has for us if we'd pursue it. And if you thought we're done, that's just the first verse. Verse 4. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So not only is it what we do. It's what we say that betrays this holy life. And it says, you know, there should be no obscenity, which is no explicit rudeness in your conversation, which is a nice way of saying don't swear. No foolish talk. Well, Abraham Lincoln kind of nailed this one. He said, "There's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. And there should be no coarse joking. Yeah, you know, there are two indicators of a person's character. What makes them laugh? And what makes them weep? Great test. Holy living means being thankful. Being thankful is acknowledging God's favor in your life. And Paul gives the antidote here to that sort of talk. And he says, have a thankful heart. Choosing to be thankful is a powerful exercise. You realize in our, in our culture, where materialism and, and is king and image is everything, It's so much easier to think of something we want but don't have than to be thankful for what we do have. All it takes is a glance at someone else's clothes or phone or whatever it is that they have. It makes us forget about all the good things in our life. Over and over again in the Bible, we're encouraged, we're commanded to give thanks to God. Moses and Miriam did it after God miraculously delivered them from Pharaoh and his army. David did it after God rescued him from his enemies. But David also did it while he was alone in the desert. And Paul was thankful while he was imprisoned for his faith. Apparently, God wants thankfulness to be a part of our character, not just an occasional thought. But how do we get there? How do we learn in those moments of frustration and of anger or jealousy to shift our gaze from what's wrong or what's lacking to what is good and what is abundant? Let me give you a really practical kind of way of doing this. Why don't you wake up tomorrow morning and choose one of the first things that you do to be write down something you're thankful for. And then on Tuesday morning, wake up, and one of the first things you choose to do is to write down something different that you are thankful for. And on Wednesday morning, you get up, and and one of the first things you choose to do is to write down on on an ever-growing piece of paper something you are thankful for. And on Thursday morning, you get up, and one of the first things you choose to do before you do anything else to cloud your day is you you write down something you are thankful for. And on Friday, you get up, and on Friday, you grab this ever-growing list, and maybe it's turned into a journal now, and you write down, I'm thankful for and on Saturday you get up and you, you write down another thing, and on Sunday another, and you start every day, and you know what? I I reckon before you get to the end of your life, you'll never have to repeat. There is so much to be thankful for. Now let's turn it around another way. And let's also put into something else this week. And why don't we why don't we have a goal of finding a couple of people in your life each week? that you can go to them and say i am thankful because you're in my life because and if you found two people maybe you start with your brother or your sister maybe you start with your mom or your dad maybe you start with your friends your teachers your coaches Imagine if you were that person who every week you filled the thankful tank of two people by saying, I'm thankful because of, in your life. And then do you know what happens? What you've started to do is you've got in your life, you're beginning to build a storehouse of thankfulness. You see, often I find one of the reasons why I struggle sometimes in worship it's because I haven't been thankful during the week. And you so say, when it comes to those moments where we say, let's praise God for all that he has done, it's like you're building this storehouse in the back of your life, and every time you say, there's something I'm thankful for, it's like you put it back there, and you come into a moment like this or another moment where you need to be thankful, and you simply reach back, and if you've been um, meticulously putting things in there, You simply reach back and out it comes and there's something to be thankful for. I wonder how many of us are going, there must be something there somewhere I can be thankful for. Paul says be thankful. Holy living comes when we replace what is improper and out of place with holiness and with thankfulness. And the next time you start with an impure Or a greedy thought, replace that thought with a thankful one. You see, there's more to having our thankful storehouse than just simply then bringing it out in a time of worship. It's so powerful next time that thought comes across your mind or that action pops into your mind that you want to do. Grab some thankfulness. Actually, I'm going to choose to be thankful in that moment instead. Why does it matter? Why should we live holy? Why should we live thankful? Look at verse 5. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. One who surrenders to sexual immorality indicates ultimately that they're not surrendered to God. An idolater is someone who chooses to worship anything other than God. And holiness is... And thanksgiving are signs of salvation, living up to what we've already attained, to that calling that we have received. Whereas immorality and impurity suggest strongly the person is not living up to what they may have received. Now, you might ask this question, are you saying, if I sin sexually, I'm not saved? It doesn't say that. What it does say is this, if you have chosen to surrender your life to immorality, you've actually got to ask the question, were you ever saved? Warren Worsby helpfully puts it this way. He says, a Christian is not sinless, but he does sin less and less and less. The Christian is a king, and it is beneath his dignity to indulge in the practices of the lost world that is outside the kingdom of God. Hear me so carefully here there is a worthy calling we have received. It is to live up to this incredible calling of Christ that his light will shine on us and through us. And when we choose to live below that, we choose to live below the level of dignity that we have been given as a woman and as a man following Jesus Christ. Verse six says this: Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let, let me, let me just show you this. Sarah, can you just come here? For me. That's very cool. The unravel of paper, right? Yeah, right, piece of paper. Got it. Yeah. All right, all makes sense. Okay, Josh, can you can you come over here? Let's kind of move out this way a little. All right, we're going to make this. All right, here we go. Now, Josh, turn around the other way. That's good. Walk backwards. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Stop. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you a very trustworthy stain. This paper will hold your weight when you sit on it. Right. Okay. Now, now, given that you always believe what I say, what are you now going to do? Don't do it. <laughs> The, um, it's kind of obvious, eh? Yet, how many of us would believe the empty and destructive and dangerous and false and fruitless words like, don't take sin so seriously? Sexual permissiveness, that's okay. You can sleep around a bit, it won't harm you. You can fool around a bit, nobody will know. It's as secure and solid as trying to sit on a piece of paper. That's what what Paul's saying here. He says, there's nothing that you can base your life on in a statement like that. He goes and he says, but God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient, so so don't be partners with them. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we should kind of not, not associate with people who live the way we do. That means don't join your spirit with them. It means live a holy life. Think of Richie McCaw just for a moment in this. Go back to the rugby analogy. Here's a guy who's saying, I know the goal. The goal is to be the best rugby player I can be. I know what that's going to take. I know what that's going to cost. I know what I'm going to have to leave out. I know what I'm going to have to do. I know what I need to eat. I know how I need to exercise. I know how to do all these things because I've got the goal. You see, it's the same with us now, Christian life. If we're to live worthy of the calling we've received, it is such an incredible calling to live this life where Christ shines on us and through us that we display his glory, where we get to experience full life where we get to experience the kind of life that the creator of the universe wants to pour into us. It's almost insulting to think that we would do something beneath our dignity. And yet sometimes we believe it and we sit on paper. And you might say, well, that's fine, but you have no idea how tough it can be in the lecture room or the university hall or the classroom or the building site. You have no idea the language. You have no idea the innuendos. You have no idea all of those sort of things. And, and you know, to some extent, you could say that's right. You know, the guys I work with, they, they, they tend to have a pretty, you know, kind of upright sort of character. If they didn't, I'd probably fire them, but that's not... No. <laughs> You know, I never said it was simple. But here's the thing. It's not about what you're trying to avoid. It's rather what you're living for. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy. He said, physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things. Holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. Worthy living means we live holy. Worthy living means we live thankful. And lastly, verse 8, worthy living means we live True. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Yeah, you know, there is this beautiful statement find out what pleases the Lord. We're to live this life where everything kind of comes to a head when we realize that our life displays goodness and righteousness and truth. And there's freedom and truth. We live truth. In other words, it's saying, let's live free. But how do we find out what pleases the Lord? Well, Sarah and I got married 27 years ago. Wow. Amazing. I married the most, and I'll say this very objectively, I married the most drop-dead gorgeous woman on the face of planet Earth. She still is. But... Here's the thing, when we got married, we, we kind of like didn't know how each other ticked. And and I would say things that would upset her and I would do things that would upset her and I would not do things and that would upset her. And and it was like, yeah, there was just this kind of keeping on missing it, and like Sarah spent the first three years of our married life, you know, upset and frustrated. I want you to begin to tell you what I felt. But It came to this moment where a wise person in the book that I was reading, probably out of desperation, said, there is a really, really important question you need to ask. And so we started asking this question. Here was the question. What can I do so that you feel loved? And I began this journey. I began to become a student of that question because our marriage depended on it. And I began to understand what made Sarah feel loved emotionally. I began to work out what made Sarah feel loved intellectually. I began to work out what made her feel loved physically. I began to understand what made her feel loved spiritually. And as you become a student of that question, It's amazing how your marriage becomes enriched. And here, in the same way, God is saying to you, ask me, what do you have to do to please him? It's the same question. But you know, it's not not one of those tantalizing questions where the answer is always just over the horizon. He gives us the answer right here. He said, if you want to know what pleases me, it's three things. Live worthy, live holy, live thankful, live true. By living as children of the light. We exhibit the fruit of the light and we therefore expose the fruitless deeds of darkness. Verse 11, have nothing to do with these fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. Now, before you start getting excited and thinking, cool, as Christians, we can go on this witch hunt. We can scan and try and find where are the fruitless deeds of darkness in other people. And when you find them, you go, gotcha. What it means is this. As you live Based on truth, you begin to find in your own life that those fruitless deeds are exposed. And you have those wonderful moments where you look in the mirror and you go, Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm doing that. I can't believe I'm thinking that. And in that moment, what is happening is the Spirit of God is taking the truth of God in a framework of holy living and thankful living. And he's going, you know what, Nick Field? You're not as crash hot as you maybe thought you were. And a fruitless deed of darkness is exposed. And then I have a choice. I can either hold it and say, sorry, God, I like this one or I can let it go. When we live for what is true, we put into sharp focus what is not of God in our life. The comparison is obvious, and the light of the gospel will shine through our lives as we live holy, thankful, truth-filled lives of freedom. And Paul finishes this section, he says, this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Yeah, it's highly likely that those words were a song that they used to sing back in the day. And Paul is grabbing from a song that was sung, and somebody must have written it. And he's saying, right here in this moment, wake up, sleeper. I wonder if some of us have fallen asleep in this area. I wonder if we've, we've so settled for less than second best in our life. That it's as though the, the, the kind of the pool of our life has become dirty and cloudy and we're just thinking, I actually don't want to even test it. I know it's there but I'm okay with that. And we've we've surrendered ourselves to a life of compromise. We've surrendered ourselves to a life of unholiness. We've surrendered ourselves to a life of unthankfulness. There's nothing in our storehouse. There's nothing that we can give whenever we come to a passage like this. We just skim over it because we don't want to dip into it because we're scared of what we'll find. Paul says, wake up. Wake up. There's a clarity of life that it is a decision away for you. There is a clarity and a joy and a power that is yours in abundance because he wants to pour it into you. Wake up. Rise from the dead. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. If you haven't, the Bible calls you dead. You might say, untrue. My pulse is going. I might be asleep through your talking, but I know I'm alive. The Bible calls you dead. You're dead in your sin. You're dead in the fact that you've never surrendered your life to Christ, biblically, theologically. The Bible says, you know what, that means you're dead. And what that means is when you get to your final breath and you go beyond, you're dead for eternity. That's in a place called hell. And it is inconceivable to us here at the Street City Church that you would walk out of here without hearing the message of hope, that you are one decision away from life, that decision to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to live this incredible life, this worthy life this holy life, this thankful life this true life every other one is a facade every other one is a lie, this is true life so we either wake up or we rise up and Christ shines on us with all of his glory and shines through us for his glory. Would you stand with me? The team are gonna come in a second, and we're gonna respond and and worship just just for a little bit. And then Sarah will bring bring us to a close, but just in this moment, take a moment of silence, just you and Jesus. What's the spirit been saying? What whisper is going on in your life? What what area of life has he put his finger on?